accessing library computer data. Out there, there are no saints. Just people. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. Continuing our run through of Deep Space Nine. We are up to episodes 20 and 21 of season 2. It's called The Maquis. It was directed by David Livingston and Corey Allen. Livingston did part 1, Corey Allen did part 2. The story goes to Rick Berman, Michael Pillar, Jerry Taylor, James Cocker, Iris Stephen Bear, and the teleplay goes to James Cocker for part 1. Teleplay for part 2 goes to Iris Stephen Bear. It aired back on April 24th, 1994 and May 1st, 1994. In this episode, uh, we learn about the Maquis. We learn about all the nonsense that's going on in the DMZ of space. We learn that Benjamin Sisko has a friend, uh, and we learn a few other things, I suppose, about Deep Space Nine. I don't actually have the Memory Alpha wiki page open right now, so I can't give you the copyright infringed uh, summary of what it is. But anyway, Clay, how are you? I'm good. Uh, they really brought everybody into the room for this one, huh? Yeah. Seems yeah. Like, seems like everybody on board was had a hand in writing this one. I'll have a um, well, well, there's sort of a justification for that, which we'll get into um in a little bit. But I guess since uh, time is short, we will just sort of play an audio clip. Me and Claire are going to come back and we're going to break down the Maquis. Establish a dialogue. What the hell does she think I've been trying to do? Commander. Just because a group of people belong to the Federation, it does not mean that they are saints. Excuse me. Do you know what the trouble is? No. The trouble is Earth. Really. On Earth, there is no poverty, no crime, no war. You look out the window of Starfleet headquarters and you see paradise. Well, it's easy to be a saint in paradise. But the Marquis do not live in paradise. Out there, in the demilitarized zone, all the problems haven't been solved yet. Out there, there are no saints, just people. Angry, scared, determined people who are going to do whatever it takes to survive, whether it meets with the Federation approval or not. Makes sense to me. I'm glad someone understands. All right, Clay. So you mentioned at the top that this is a uh, there's a lot of writers on this one. So as you say, there are indeed a lot of writers. We have all the showrunners from all of the series involved: Michael Pillar, Berman, Jerry Taylor, Iris Stephen Bear, and we've got two people writing the script, which is usually the way that they do things with two partners in Star Trek. But I thought that. Um, the reason for this is I thought I'd sort of go through the, the history of the Maquis and where they stand at this point in the series. So uh, I'll, I'll dull you with some rambling for a little while so you can, you can kind of chime in uh, when you feel like it, or you can just go up and get a coffee and come back in a couple of minutes. I'll, I'll hit my mute button so you won't be able to hear me snoring. The uh, TNG, I don't know if you remembered the Maquis from TNG. They were in the last season. They were in two episodes. Uh, they were in The Journey's End and... Wes, I can't even remember what happened in the last episode <laughs> and I watched. In the, the preemptive strike. They're, <clears throat> they're notable in TNG because uh, both the episodes that they dealt with had a character leave the show, even though it was the seventh season. So they had Wesley Crusher leave the show, and then they had Ro Laren leave the show uh, for the Maquis episodes. DS9 got sort of stuck with them as a middle ground because the Maquis were always intended to be a Voyager creation. That would be like the the sort of background of where Voyager would go, which would be the crew, uh, half Maquis and half Starfleet mixed together and they're 70 years away from home. How do they, How will they ever survive their trip back when there's such uh, ideological differences between the crew? That was the whole point. 
they were designed for Voyager. The other series set up the Maquis in order for Voyager to take the reins because Voyager was going to be seen as the flagship show of the series, mm-hmm. even while DS9 was running because Voyager is a starship. And much like the uh, the next generation in TOS, they thought that the people would enjoy a series that was more starship based. And DS9 was always going to be the black sheep of the family. That was a little bit different. And... So that's the that's the backstory of the Maquis. We have three series that have been working in the sort of background trying to prep Voyager uh, to use them. Voyager would abandon the Maquis almost immediately and give up on the idea of that's what the show was about to be. And uh, it turned itself into Next Generation Light, basically. So, what so it- they had planned to use these guys. Basically, they were planning for Voyager like years ahead of actually making Voyager. Voyager came out only a couple months after this episode came out but these guys were in t in tng and that those episodes aired a month before this episode aired. oh they did yeah oh okay so right. i guess th- my, my, my time I'm, I'm going by podcast timeline and not uh <clears throat> excuse me not airing timeline yeah so in so, my head it's like well tng's been done for like two years <laughs> yeah so this is this is peak star trek this is where all three series are basically running gotcha in the back and um so i think that the the timing of everything here is important because it's everything working across the three shows simultaneously, trying to create a a, a lived-in universe. I, I do have to say, it is kind of impressive looking back on it that um, there were two this that Star, Star Trek The Next Generation and Star Trek as a brand was successful enough as a syndicated television show to create two more syndicated television shows running concurrently. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's pretty good. Pretty much, pretty much concurrent for that. TNG ended a couple months before Voyager aired, so there was a there was a, a month. There's a month or so period where DS9 was the only show airing, but it, okay. it is basically three shows running at the same exact time. But still, I mean, that's that's pretty good. It means that means a lot of people are watching it. So yep. And so my last uh, little bit of trivia before we get into this is that because of the nature of what they were doing with the Maquis for Voyager. Michael Piller, who had been the showrunner on DS9 up until this point, started to focus more on Voyager because he got moved over to that. After creating DS9 and sort of uh, running show running for the first year and a half or two, he then got called over to Voyager with Jerry Taylor. They started working on that. Um, Michael Piller is still ostensibly the showrunner of DS9 at this point, but Iris Stephen Bear starts to step up at this point. You probably remember Iris Stephen Bear from the uh, the Star Trek documentary, the uh, the chaos on the bridge or whatever he's the guy with the blue mm-hmm. beard and the glasses oh yeah okay he is the uh he's a producer on the show at this point and in the middle of season three he becomes showrunner of deep space nine and he had started his star trek career on the next generation in season three he didn't last a year because he chafed under roddenberry so much that he quit the show mm-hmm. and um, he wrote basically the only thing that people would remember from that year was Captain's Holiday, which is an episode that if you look back on it is almost making fun of Star Trek on some level. Like it, it's <laughs> it's very it doesn't take the material very seriously. And he would go on to become a uh, important voice in DS9 and is re- sort of responsible for the way that DS9 worked. This is all a long way of saying I think that the Maquis episode is important because this is the first episode that I've felt really embraces the direction that DS9 eventually starts to go in. And it's a maybe a more important episode than it actually is good, but it is 
kind of a key thing. And to me, it felt really different from everything that had come before it. So that's been a lot of me talking, but you can uh, let me know what you thought about the Maquis as a uh, sort of general oversense, and then we'll get into it. Um, <clears throat> I enjoyed it. Uh, it I... <laughs> If I'm honest, the first half was a little a little rough for me, um, only because I'm still getting over my preconceived notions of DS9, and the first half of this was pretty much everything my traditional uh, uh, shying away of DS9 uh, is built upon, which was just people basically talking about diplomacy for an hour. But that being said, I I did think what they were doing was good. I actually think it works together as a whole really well. Um, I watched them I, I watched them separately, so I didn't I didn't funnel right into the next one. So the first one didn't make a huge mark on me. Um, but when I wa- when I finished it, seeing seeing it as a whole story, I think it I think it's it's done pretty well. The stuff that they give you in the first episode is is all very <clears throat> excuse me all very uh, integral to everything that plays out in the second one and it's it's interesting political stuff um i guess that's the thing it's like the 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 stuff that makes it engaging uh that makes the first half engaging doesn't really happen until the second half because you really get to see how the political machinations start to move um but yeah once once you got to the end seeing uh how they have to kind of uh, dance around with the Cardassians and how the Cardassians are, you know, constantly lying to them, but also trying to preserve their own peace. And so I thought it was well done. And I mean, Cisco gets some really great stuff to do, uh, like monologues and stuff. There's there's some there's a lot of good stuff in these episodes. Yeah, I think that it's a um, it is right. We don't have a sci-fi B plot, basically, right. which is a, which right. is a big step forward. This is it's a purely character based thing. Uh, where they're working on, and I, I, I don't know, I, I might like, uh, it, it, obviously we're going to have our uh, jokes and stuff, but I, I I feel that the episode is... No jokes this episode. <laughs> None. I, I feel the, the, the episodes themselves are very, there's a big shift in tone here, where like, this, this is basically Cisco's story. And to, you know, for where the rest of the series is going to go, this is kind of the initiation of Cisco becoming disillusioned with Starfleet on some level. Mm-hmm. And the episodes that we've had previously to this, while he's had a little bit of doubt about whether or not he wants to be in Starfleet, he hasn't had doubts about the institution itself. He's had a lot of episodes where Emissary, you know, he wanted to drop out, but then he decided that he's going to come back in and he's going to lead the way. Um, he thought that Jake was going to go to the Academy in shadow play and was disappointed when he didn't go. Blood Elf, he tried to convince Dax not to kill somebody because it goes against Federation values. Cisco to this point has been a company man. And the Maquis is different because it is built around this idea and it's Iris Stephen Bear's worldview that the Roddenberry universe doesn't make any sense. Like the ethos of TNG <laughs> doesn't make any sense. Basically, some... wait, was that a joke? Because <laughs> we said no jokes. <laughs> Basically, summed up in the. Uh, I just have some. I have a lot to say about this episode. I think, but the um, it's built around the opening scene in the second part where Cisco talks to Admiral Necheyev about what they're going to mm-hmm. do with the Maquis, and Cisco has a spiel where he's talking to Kira about 
Earth is paradise, and that's the reason that Starfleet Command is out of touch with what's going on, because when they look out the window, uh, they don't see any problems that are going on. Right. That that was great. I thought that was a great speech. That's the Iris Stephen Bear trying to reconcile the Roddenberry universe with his own desire to actually have some kind of conflict in Starfleet and on this universe. So it's it's a shifting of the Roddenberry universe does exist, but it's limited to a sort of elite class of Earth that doesn't comprise what's actually going on on the ground. Mm-hmm. And the Maquis represent that, where the Maquis basically have come into existence because the Federation fucked up a treaty so badly that the Federation has shown that they are willing to, in order to keep the peace, they're willing to sort of sell out their own people and not keep their people's best interests at heart. They're more concerned with these sort of Federation values of peace and prosperity and don't fight and war is not worth it and compromise is the way forward. And the series from this episode going forward is really built around challenging that idea about how can the Federation exist like this and where do the cracks start to show and the enemies that they develop, the antagonists, including the Cardassians, are built to take advantage of that strength as a weakness. They sort of turn that on the Federation's head a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting. And you, you said you liked that speech, but did you th- was there, did you think it was just the writing you enjoyed or did you think that this sort of, did you think it was unique, I suppose, from Cisco at this point? Oh, 100%. Yeah. No, I mean, the content of what he's saying is is stuff that up to this point you've never heard anybody say in Star Trek. And it's it's really refreshing because it is a point of view. It's, you know, because it's the problem with the Roddenberry thing is like it's optimistic. But how 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 much can you really lay into it before it just comes off as naive a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Um, and because you know, you know, his whole thing about not wanting conflict between characters, blah 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 blah. And you know, it's like I understand what he's going for, but in 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 keeping to that, we've talked about this a bunch of times before. You're ignoring the fact that people are going to be people, and they're going to do what people have always done. You know, it's like even just because everybody is uh, unified doesn't mean you don't kind of think someone's an asshole. You know, so there's yeah. always going to be there's always going to be this other side of that equation. Um, and to see someone in Starfleet so eloquently lay it out is really, really great and really uh, um, important. And I, you know, I kind of think I kind of think this is colored everything that comes after it. I mean, I, I obviously I haven't seen the rest of Deep Space Nine and Voyager. I don't really remember that well, but especially the way that they've been handling stuff in the modern era with the, the Abrams stuff and, and with discovery, they've kind of turned Starfleet more pessimistic um, where you've got uh, like discovery Starfleet, basically the whole arc of the, the story is that Starfleet is kind of pessimistic, but then, you know, Burnham is kind of optimistic at the end. Um, and the same thing with the, the Abrams movies. You have a lot more uh, Starfleet being the bad guy kind of stuff. Um, yeah. In, in a, even whether it's literal in the second one or uh, more kind of this point of view in the third one. Um, it, it's it's interesting how it's such a seismic shift in the way that you, that the universe is viewed, that it has kind of like colored everything that comes after it. it, it if, if only because it just shows how influential Deep Space Nine is. Yeah, I I think it's a 
it, it's a maturity of storytelling. Like the, the interesting thing is that Roddenberry's big thing about there's no conflict anymore is basically because he designed the next generation to be post scarcity. Like people aren't fighting over things anymore. Everyone has what they yeah. need. Mm-hmm. DS9 sidesteps that by saying there are still, even if this is the case in this universe, people are still going to fight over symbolic things like their home and stuff like that. Right, right. And, and also, he, you know, he makes the good point, which is like, yeah, everything is great back on Earth, but Earth isn't the only place where people live. And just because uh, Starfleet is based on Earth um, and that's the only thing they're seeing, they kind of they lose perspective on people who are out in on the frontier uh, yeah. struggling to stay alive. And it's it's a really good point to make because it's it's something it's a point of view that has not been considered it's usually just oh yes we are here on this planet and everything seems to be fine you know that that's always been the way it is uh um and so to have a conflict like this with a starfleet commander being so torn over it is is really is really great the um they choose nechev as the admiral to represent here. She's been on TNG a couple times. She's a, she's a very good admiral character because she's never been shown to be she doesn't fall into the stereotypical evil admiral cliche. Right. She she's kind of aggressive and can be a little bit rude sometimes, but she always has the best interests at heart. The show does a good job of not she's making She's kind of like she's kind of like the Ruth Bader Ginsburg of stuff. Yes, yes. <laughs> if you if you're familiar I'm sorry. With- I'm sorry. I said no jokes. That's that that that's the last one. You're deep in chapter nine of your history of the Supreme Court uh, book, and you just had to hit the bus. <laughs> no jokes, Wes. <laughs> the um, the the thing about Necheyev is that she's a good admiral choice because she doesn't come across as incompetent. She comes across as not fully appreciating the situation that's going on there, and I think that's important. It's better than having Starfleet be openly antagonistic toward the colonists and the Maquis. They're more of the, they don't really understand what's going on and why she has the line open a dialogue after Cisco has spent an entire episode trying to talk to them about what's going on. And it's, it's a clever flip around of the admirals aren't particularly evil. There's nothing evil about what star uh, Starfleet is trying to do. They're just not understanding what's actually going on underneath them. They're high, they're upper management that really doesn't have a day to day in the game of what's going on. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, to, just to get back, I mean, we'll start at the, the beginning here. So Cisco meets Cal Hudson, who is a uh, commander friend of his. And they, uh, they sort of have to work out this Maquis situation where the Cardassians and the Federation worked out a treaty where that no one seemed to uh, enjoy the end result where Cardassian colonies are on the Federation side and Federation colonies are on the Cardassian side. And now fighting has broken out between them and the Federation is trying to squash whatever's happening there with this rebellion and this Maquis terrorist organization. And the Cardassians are trying to work it so that they'll have an advantage uh, on their side. Um, to me, the weakest part of this whole episode is Cal Hudson, uh, just because I think the actor is miscast and he doesn't really, he doesn't get it across for me. He feels, um, he feels a little bit wooden and I needed someone who was a little bit more emotional and exciting in that position. Mm. I think he comes across as a little bit stiff to be the guy who's switching sides. Yeah, he felt like, uh, <clears throat> he felt like he was matching Cisco's energy, which is not really what you want to do. <laughs> Right, yeah. Like, they, they both kind of had that same sort of, like, aloof, a, aloof grandiosity or grandeur to their voice. 
uh, and kind of I felt like they delivered their lines fairly similarly. And it, it's I, I would agree that someone someone with a little bit more uh, um, passion maybe might have been a better choice for that for that part. He's um. See, I think that the reason they're similar is that they're so blatantly supposed to be mirrors of each man could have gone the other way, right? On some right. level, and even down to the you know they're they're generally the same build. They look somewhat similar, like they they talk and act, uh, deliver their lines similar to each other. They both lost their wives recently, and you know it, it's subtle, but I think that the 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 problem of Starfleet is even worked into the fact that. Starf, uh, they both lose their wives, and the conversation they have is when they when they meet each other is about how Cisco's apologizing he wasn't able to go visit Cal Hudson after his wife had died because his job got in the way, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a commentary, I think, on the 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 difference between the two is that Cisco to this point is all about the uniform to the point where literally in the second thing, he says he doesn't recognize Cal Hudson because he wasn't wearing his uniform. Right. And it's a, it's really just trying to, to break down the fact that Cisco at this point, and maybe he changes somewhat through this episode is in the throes of Starfleet in a way that Hudson is not. And because Hudson's looking to find some kind of meaning in his life, he decides to leave and join the Maquis. Just things did not work out the way that they worked out for Cisco for Hudson, and they end up on different paths. Yeah, I mean, they almost they basically take the turn at literally the same point. Uh, because when Cisco's wife dies, he basically folds inward onto Starfleet, and uh, you know, t- uses the reassignment to Deep Space Nine to be his way of helping work through that. Whereas Hudson seems to go the other way where after his wife dies, he starts going against Starfleet and, and, and really trying to reevaluate everything. Yeah. He doesn't have his face to face with a uh, Picard to sort of work it out. He, he still holds Starfleet to be the, the enemy sort of as to what happened or responsible for the negativity that happened in his I f- life. I forget how does, do they say how his wife died? She didn't die. I thought she died at Wolf three, five, nine, but that's not the case. I think she just died. Uh, I don't think there was anything particularly insidious about it. If that's okay. yeah, it's, yeah, it's interesting that Cisco's wife was killed via Starfleet means, you know, yep. more or less. Yeah, and uh, he turns inwards toward it, whereas this guy, his wife, just dies through. I don't know. Maybe she fell down some stairs. I don't know. <laughs> uh, not a joke. Serious inquiry. <laughs> um, and uh, he ends up railing so harshly against it. I, I don't even know if he's really railing against it harshly. He's just kind of seeing the other side of the, the other side of the equation. He's choosing he's choosing that side. It's not it's not it's not like he's actively uh, well, trying to take actively, down. He does actively blow up his own uniform, but like <laughs> it's, it's not like he has any sort of grand uh, um, vengeance or anything in mind. Yeah, yeah. or like. Uh, um, the word uh i'm blanking on the word i'm looking for but like uh um the it's not like he has any grand i uh ideas about why starfleet is fucking up and all that kind of stuff he's just sort right. of like you know yeah yeah he's the and i i think that sort of ties into the maquis because the maquis to me are portrayed as not really aware of what they're doing like they don't have an ultimate goal in mind with what they're doing they're just kind of angry about the whole situation and they're they're fighting back they're trying to being picked on but they don't have a end go- end game 
in mind as to what's going to happen here besides maybe getting their their homes back and not having to deal with the Cardassians. But there there's no plot in the background. It's really just a reaction to everything that's been happening to them. Mm-hmm. Can I tell you, I mean, this is jumping way ahead, but can I tell you my favorite scene in all in both episodes of this? Yeah, sure. Was uh, the Quark scene in the in the jail where he yep. uh, gets the information out of the Vulcan? That was my favorite scene. They the they needed it because because uh, in my opinion, some of the worst scenes were the where where he was sort of dating the Vulcan at the start. Yeah, that was that was uh, one of those ones where in the first half I was like, okay, this is not really leading to anything, and it's just wasting a lot of time. Yep. And it, but but when it comes full circle, yeah, it's like okay, I I get it now. Maybe well, maybe well, a little bit too much, but you know. You oh you thought the the ending quirk the ending stuff was too much with quirk because no that... no maybe they spent too much time in the first half with him and the girl but in the Vulcan but, oh yes yeah uh, but it I, it was worth it at the end yeah why do you like the ending for quirk because it uh, it's it's a really um, I just love that he uses his uh, shiftiness to accurately appeal to the Vulcan sense of logic in terms of basically um, treating peace like a business. Yeah. And he uses, he uses the, the shiftiness that he ha- he, he has about business on, for personally, plus the idea of the Klingons appealing to logic to fuse those together into an argument. Why this is why she should betray her own uh, group and help the Federation stop this shit from going down i thought it was great it it was my my favorite use of quark so far in the series it's probably the best use of the ferengi ideology you know it's it's not using the ferengi ideology as like a joke it's actually saying that they could exist in this universe and they could have a way of seeing things that maybe the other races don't see at that point um it's it's also it's also if you look at it from like a philosophical standpoint it's incredibly pessimistic (laughs) Yes. Where he, yes. He's, he's just literally treating treating peace and war like any other business. It's uh, you know not to get too cheesy, but it's like the Megadeth song, right? The peace sellers <laughs> that he's buying. <laughs> my favorite. But um, it's my favorite well, onion headline is uh, artists still trying to make art like they they don't acknowledge that peace sells exist or everything. Ross right. sort of <laughs> the uh, the but, pinnacle. But you know, yeah, it's a it's a uh, it's a it's a fascinating point of view that is very accurate to like if if cisco had given that speech it would have felt really out of character like it would have felt like it would have felt like i know i know people a a lot of times across varying um um, uh, media these days get really pissed off when people are too preachy about stuff and like you can feel the, the thumb of the writer like really laying down some values that they have or or stances that they take or whatever yeah here's my big Um, idea here's the monologue where my big idea comes out basically right yeah and if you had given that speech to anybody else it would have felt that way but giving it to quark makes it is is totally within the character so you can make that point and still have it feel totally honest to the story that you're telling because that character those are values that he actually would have i i thought it was great yeah yeah it's a um, it's necessary because I really don't like the opening stuff with Quark. So it's it's necessary in terms of redeeming him. And it's just a it's a really good just use of the uh, characters. Bear tends to like the Ferengi more than anyone else has uh, to this point. So he, he has some interesting ways of taking them. But it's it's nice to not have their 
you know, the sort of ethos be taken as a joke. Quark has a point at the very end. He sort of solves the whole situation. And that ties into the situation of the episode itself is largely fixed by non-human characters because Dukat Mm. is also very important to the resolution here. And we get a lot of Dukat stuff, particularly in the second half uh, of the two episodes. Um, Yeah, I thought he was great too. He's very good. He, I think, you know, he goes on to become sort of a series antagonist for the remainder of the, the entire thing. He steps up, frequently seen as one of the better villains that Star Trek has ever done. Um, he's good here because he bounces back and forth between... What's your opinion of what happened to him? Is is everything that he says on face, or do you think that there was something else? Like, is his arc natural here where he comes out to help Cisco. He reveals, he learns that the Cardassian Central Command has sort of conspired against him, and then he gets his own comeuppance at the end where he can insert himself back in. Um, I always got the, I always got a little bit of the impression, I didn't know if he, where the total line of honesty was being drawn mm. with them, and I don't know if that's <clears throat> intentional or if it's just the way that the writing worked out, but I, I was curious what you thought. Yeah, I would kind of agree. I think I think it's probably somewhere gray in the middle like my my understanding was that um i mean they obviously don't come out and say this but i assumed that the cardassian uh second order no what's the central command Command. central command so many weird things um (laughs) first first the cardassian first in line uh said that uh I assume that them throwing Ducat to the Maquis and basically putting everything on him was their way of washing their hands of the fact that they were running guns yes. to the other yeah. side. They're going to sell or not, him out. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, whether or not Ducat was involved with that, I don't know. I think it could go either way. I think either he could, he might not have been, but I think he very easily could have been because he's the way that they're choosing their spot to cut him loose, he's then choosing his spot later. To get, uh, excuse me, <coughs> to uh, get back in. It, 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 we, we got a very emotional about that scene. <laughs> no, but yeah, it I... just touches me. <laughs> you know, I, I'm one of the things I love more than anything is betraying my my own people. So <laughs> when when someone, I, when I can see that in a character and really relate to it, it really uh, resonates with me. No jokes. The um. I'm going to regret this. No, I'm going to regret saying no jokes, and I'm going to regret ever saying the word objective, I think, with the way that the patron comments are coming in. But, um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I agree. I, I'm similarly – I was similarly torn about whether or not Ducat was aware of it. I think I'm leaning 60-40 that he was actually used as a pawn by the government mm-hmm. and wasn't aware mm-hmm. because – only because of the scene where he's talking to Cisco in Cisco's quarters and Ducat's eating the meal. They have that conversation about how um, all trials on Cardassia are already predecided right, before they right. start. I got the sense there he, to me, felt like he was legitimately felt like he was betrayed by what had gone on there. And after that point, he kind of works with Cisco more to get back at the central government on some level. Like he wants mm-hmm. to resolve it in a way that will not allow Cardassia to come out on top or not to do active harm, but to not allow them to sort of embarrass him in the same way that they, they did previously. Right. That, that scene with, with Cisco is, is, uh, he could have, I think that's, that's one where it really comes down to the way the actor plays it. Cause if you just look at the stuff that he's saying, he could have played that a different way and have it come across. Like that's what he was expecting to happen. 
Yep. You know, like the way the way when Cisco tells him what they're doing, he could have really played that off like, uh huh. Yep. That's clearly what they're going to do. That kind of thing. But he does play it a little bit more to surprise. Yeah. Uh, and I, w- I was actually a little bit surprised myself that he that it was played that way because I he does come off so like, um, you know, uh, surely they're not going to just leave me here and not come back for like that kind of that kind of energy that I was kind of surprised that he wouldn't just assume they were going to fuck him over at the first chance that they got. Yeah. Um, but- like I like he's he's such a uh, a snake himself that the fact that he wasn't completely already aware that they were going to do the same thing to him, especially when he's like, yeah, they haven't really been liking me over there lately. Um, it is a little surprising. So yeah, I could I could I could see that. Um, I think I would agree that that was would push me towards thinking that he was a pawn. But at the same time, I think I don't think it really matters. I think either way, it still works. But I, I would agree that there's probably more evidence to to. to to go which way you're going yeah and i think that the what they do with ducat is interesting because he sort of starts off as a voice of reason right on some level he he's used the show is very careful about the fact that it never says that the cardassians are better than the humans like the ideology of the two are are not better the cardassians are clearly a worse society than the federation is and what we don't they, we don't really know too much about them, do we? Like no, as not far a as tremendous, their society. Yeah, you, well, you know that they're a military dictatorship, which is never right. never particularly good. But we don't know yeah. too much about what goes on on Cardassia. We know that there are underground resistances. Uh, we know that, and it's a military organization. They're constantly obsessed with war, and they're obsessed with war because they basically starved their own culture to death mm-hmm. in order in order to fight these wars. So, what we learn about them though is that the federate the show is sure that the Federation and the Maquis have a stronger grasp of ethics than the Cardassians do because when Dukat gets captured and they re- they're trying to mind meld with him and it's not working and they refuse to torture him and Dukat is kind of making fun of them saying like you don't have the you basically don't have the balls to do what's necessary in this situation. Yeah, I like I like that scene too. The uh, Alemo's really good as Dukat. He's a really good actor. They they yeah, pretty he's much great. they pretty much lucked out with him. But they what they're doing is just and then it ends with the scene in the shuttlecraft where Cisco refuses to fire on Cal Hudson and D- Ducat says he's disappointed with Cisco. He thought he had something in him. And Cisco says he'll sleep all right, knowing that Ducat is disappointed in him. There, Ducat is a voice of reason, but he's also too brutal to see as an end game. Like he, he is not the solution. He's not 100% right in what he does here, but he is a different way of thinking that actually saves the day in a few situations. Like his, his tactics are able to get results in a way that the Federation tactics aren't. Right. I think having those two shuttlecraft scenes with Ducat and Cisco go a long way. Um, the fact that they had both of them, because it, they really do kind of mirror each other where in some, in one situation, Ducat's line of thinking actually gets results. Um, but in the other situation, it's, definitely not the the outcome that is beneficial to everybody yeah um, although i mean i don't know you could argue that that he should have shot him down uh, you know but uh, i i do uh at first i was kind of thinking that i was like uh, maybe should he have fired on him but then when cisco cisco came back with the thing about uh you know i stopped them but i'm not going to fire on someone who was just defending their family I was like, all right that that makes yeah. sense that's 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 a good a good way to, to, to combat that. So having those two um, butt heads with each other, but also have 
each one of their uh, set codes of ethics or or, uh, or uh, ways of handling situations work. Yeah, for in um, I think is 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 a really great way to further the way that those two interact with each other. What what I think is interesting is that I think in, in the first part, Cal Hudson and Cisco are mirrors of each other, right? Yeah. And at the turn, Ducat becomes more of a mirror, and it's more about Cisco moves away from Hudson, or he sees Hudson moving away from him in part one, but Cisco sees Ducat as a possible mirror in part two, and he realizes he doesn't want to go that far. Well, so, they even have that scene uh, when he tells Ducat about uh, how the Cardassians are throwing him under the bus. They have that scene in Cisco's office where yeah, Ducat yeah. is sitting at the table eating dinner, and he's like, "Yeah, you even got my office." So, like, they they even position him in a point where Cisco sees him as as he would have been were he still the leader of the Deep Space Nine. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's a good point. Yeah, he's he's always breaking. Yeah, you, you kind of laugh at it when you see it because he's always breaking into his apartment, his like quarters, basically. But mm-hmm. it is it is more symbolic than that. It's about him being that person potentially. Um, yeah, and I think that Alemo's just really excellent. He's really he's a strong actor. Um, he balances off against Cal Hudson. Who I, I don't know if that guy's a bad actor, but he's just miscast. He's not the right energy for what I would expect from him. Um. And outside of that, it's a lot of great speeches in this. A, a, a very good episode for Avery Brooks as Cisco. I think he gets a lot of monologues, and I feel he's effective. I might have a little bit of a problem with the episode, just that I sometimes feel like the speeches aren't earned, even though when I look at it mechanically on like a plot level, they are earned. So I, I don't know if some of the beats just miss for me slightly. Like the, um, there are no saints speech is appropriate where it should happen but i feel like it comes on too soon it might just be the problem with having a two episode structure going on yeah it is it is like the first thing that happens yeah but it 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 does it feels like the middle of the story like it it, when you when you put them together like you said it feels appropriate where it comes in the store but if you're just watching it's like you just finished folding laundry and you throw on deep space nine he's like there are no saints everybody (laughs) ivory tower starfleet you're like whoa shit Right, and and it comes off of the Admiral just being like, oh, you should talk to him, and he kind of flips out over it. But it is built yeah. out of the, the first part. It's just the – and it, it makes sense in context because he just got uh, – he talked to Maquis at that point, and they got stunned. Like, they, they weren't making any headway with it, so he sort of understands that at that point. But it's just little bits like that, and the – they they have a lot of scenes that we kind of hate. Uh, it's all budget related, but like they're watching a view screen describing what's happening out in space instead of showing yeah, you what's did, going on. They did that again. At least they show you a graphic this time <laughs> instead of just like having people hunched over a thing and just being like, and now they're turning right and now they're gaining on each other. Like they actually gave you like a little, uh, you know, pong situation with. At, was, uh, you know, uh, insignias floating around. I always, I always find those funny because the graphic design obviously has to be done so that the audience can immediately get aware of what's going. But the characters are always written so like you see a little Starfleet insignia chasing after a Cardassian insignia in space, and Ducat is like, "What is chasing them?" You know, it's, like, <laughs> it's, it's this incredibly obvious. Seems thing. to be some sort of triangle shaped ship <laughs> that flies sideways. <laughs> it's 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 a it's a weird mix of the writers trying to be realistic and the graphic design being like we need idiots in the audience to be able to understand what's going on. I include myself as one of those idiots. Um, I don't know. I think I I pretty much covered everything I wanted to talk about. Did you have anything else that you uh, you thought about this one or just any sort of general takeaways from it? Yeah, I want to talk about how 
Apparently, Jake Sisko spent the entire episode off screen ogling women. <laughs> I'll spoil it now, but um, one of our patrons, Stephen Cobb, wrote, uh, So it must suck to be Jake Sisko. Case in point, when Ducat shows up in Sisko's quarter and Sisko is freaked out that Ducat has hurt Jake, Sisko calls Takira and has her locate Jake. She finds him and reports that Jake and Nog are watching women get off the Bajoran transport at Docking Bay 1. So apparently, Jake can, cannot surreptitiously check out women without everyone in the ops knowing about it. If I had that, ex- <laughs> if I had that experience, I would not want to be a part of Starfleet either, which is a, cut to, an excellent... <laughs> cut, to, cut to Jake just hanging out by the door with a giant pair of dark sunglasses on, trying to pretend <laughs> like he's not staring at these women. <laughs> if I hold up a book, I can look over the top of it and no one can see my eyes. It's a um, very good so- point. Uh, Something I did actually want to talk about, um, all joking aside, because we're not doing that this episode. No, no jokes. No jokes anymore. Um, I'm a little surprised. I mean, I guess, you know, again, you only get so much time to do this stuff, so you kind of got to get to it. But I th- And they do a little bit in the first part. But I was a little bit surprised they didn't circle back to uh, Kira and her... Um, I was expecting her to be a little bit more uh, reticent to fire on the Marquis, Marquis because okay. she's she makes it a point in the first half that you know she understands what it's like living under Cardassian rule and she doesn't really uh, blame them for what they're doing. And then later on, when Cisco's like, "Ah, oh, we gotta go get Gul Dukat," she's like, "Fuck that guy," you know. It, she so she's she's clearly set up, and you know they have she she and Dukat have a little bit of a thing. Uh, in in the second half, but when it comes to actually executing that final mission, where it's like, yeah, ostensibly we're going to go there to kill these people if we have to, she yeah. doesn't really voice any sort of uh, hesitancy or pushback to that. And I mean, I guess you could argue that she's just, well, you know, she, she, I think she should have because you could yeah, argue that yeah. she's following orders, but she's not the she has not been the kind of character thus far that will be. Uh, that will choose orders over her own personal ethics if she has the choice to, you know? Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. it would, uh, it surprised me a little bit that they didn't give her a little bit more um, uh, hesitancy or maybe even have her opt not to go or something. Like, you know? Yeah. Uh, and because you could have put any, she didn't do anything at the end there. You could put it, put anybody on the ship. Yeah, they, they do that a lot. They insert people into the ship that don't really do it. It's really just like someone to talk to, basically, so that the main character who matters can have a, an opinion bounced back at them. Or, or something. you could just put Bashir on. Or was he on one of the other ones? I don't he, remember. But uh, Bashir, yeah, Bashir was on there to bring up the point of: Are we going to fire on our own people? That's his only line. I think right. in the entire script. I was actually also wondering why. Why, when they go down to these places, he's on the away team every time. But I mean, I guess that's a standard yeah. thing because you know, why did McCoy <laughs> always go down to the planet? Who knows? But it's always like, Odo, you, and, I don't know, Bashir, you guys come with me. It's like, what? Why Bashir? Is he going to, just in case someone needs stitches or aspirin or something? (laughs) Um, Also, his name's Julian? I didn't know that. Yeah, Julian Bashir. Yep. I I, I think that's the first time I've I've ever heard his first name spoken out loud. That's interesting. Interesting. Do you know, well, I guess, uh, I wonder if there's anyone else. So, what's Dax's full name? (laughs) Uh... Dex word. Dex, Dex word. I think Kira is the only one that you probably wouldn't know. Um, ben Cisco. Although you were laughing the other day when I said his name was Ben Cisco, and you're like, I didn't realize his name was Ben. Um, yeah, uh, it was. I think it was B- 
Benjamin. I think I knew, I knew the Ben for some reason his whole long oh, name. Oh, his whole full name. Yeah, <laughs> I can't remember which. Yeah, one of them stood out to me. Uh, no, Dax is uh, was it? No, Kirzon Dax is the the old one, right? Yep, Kirzon. Kirzon. Yeah, Kirzon is the previous. Yeah, she's Jezia. Yeah. Um, I actually don't know what's Kira's full name. Kira Nariz. Yeah, I I wouldn't have guessed that in a million years. Yep. Um, and she's the Bajoran thing, so her first name is Nariz, and her last name is Kira. Um, oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Either. So. I think that I agree with you about the the Kira aspect at the end. I think that they they kind of cover their bases a little bit, maybe not perfectly story wise, but they have that good scene at the end of the first episode in Ops where I was struck by how different it is in this series than it is in any of the previous series where they're discussing what to do. And Odo is talking about his hands are tied and Starfleet doesn't allow him to do what he wants to do and what he needs to do to keep people safe. What do you think they're telling him? Two kidnappings and a ship exploding in the course of a week. I'm sure they've got a few things to say. It's their own fault. I've been warning them since the beginning. What are you talking about? Their fault. But you're in charge of security. If you will let me be in charge of security, I will give you a safe station. You people tell me to do my job, then give me a Federation rule book listing all the things I can't do. Untie my hands before you start to blame me, Mr. O'Brien. I'm sure no one meant to blame you, Odo. Give me the right to set a curfew. Let me do more searches of arriving passengers. Give me 50 more deputies. And the station will be just the way it was during the occupation. Say what you like. It was safer then. Unless you happen to be a Bajoran. Very important thing for Odo there. Uh, continues our... We've, we've sort of talked about how Odo is basically an authoritarian at this point at heart. Yep. Um, he is someone who really just wants to get the job done according to his own code of what needs to be done, and he resents having other people tell him what to do. Um, That scene is really unique. I can't think of another Star Trek scene where the crew members would argue with each other in that way, and and it doesn't come across as how do they rebound from it? You know, like how do they work together again after this? Because they have a pretty intense fight at that point. uh, O'Brien and Odo get into it. Kira gets into it. They say some things that are potentially hurtful to each other, and they still sort of get through it. I just thought it was a it was a neat scene for all of the crew members to be talking to each other like that. And it also, I don't know if you the way they shot it, Cisco is above them looking down because he's up on his sort of Cardassian ready room thing looking right, out, right. and that's a mirroring of that. They mentioned that in emissary. I think the Cardassian power structure is so much that everyone is set below looking up at the higher in command. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, and you know, I it's I've noticed that. Um, they have these kinds of conversations and arguments more frequently on this show than any other show, I think. Because um, I, I can I can only imagine if if this were TNG, uh, if you were to have crew members arguing, especially if they were arguing with Picard, he would be like, listen, shut up. I'm your fucking captain. Do your goddamn job. Your opinion is noted, but shut up. Do not ever speak to me that way again. Like yep. he... Picard... There was there was some pushback, but Picard was was always ready to drop the uh, chain of command thing on people. Where yeah. it seems like Cisco doesn't really do that. Um, no, no it, he's more of leadership by committee than Picard is in a lot of ways. Um, right, and it's you know it's it's interesting too because like does he has this point of view now uh, where maybe Starfleet is kind of uh, you know. Um, you know, you know what the, the shit that he says in the in the, in the uh, there are no saints speech. Yeah, uh, but does his 
leadership style not actually work more towards what that ideal actually is? Like, shouldn't shouldn't Starfleet theoretically, if you've got this utopian society, right, that where everybody is essentially an equal, shouldn't your shouldn't your leadership be more like what he's doing as opposed to like a stringent military chain of command type thing? Yeah. Like, wouldn't wouldn't yeah, you think that they down, would? Yeah. Yeah, wouldn't you think that they would welcome something the the way that Cisco is handling things, where it is more of like a communal? Uh, I mean, I guess it's not a communal decision making process, but like people's voices are being heard. Um, yes, yeah, and I think that's I, the that goes in direct conflict. The Maquis voice is simply not being heard at this. Like yes, it is, it's yeah. a failure. The Starfleet structure is a failure of the ideals that they claim to uphold. I think is what the episode's saying, and what you're pointing out. Yeah, yeah. And so it's I I I I like that they have this character who is going against what Starfleet is, but in doing that is almost even stronger what Starfleet is supposed to be. Yes. Yep. No, that, that that's a that's a good point. I think that's a that's accurate, and I think that's a it's an important way for uh, the series. It's it's. The show, I don't know if you felt it was different. I, I feel this episode is very, very different, especially knowing sort of where the show goes. Mm -hmm. Th this has, this is what Iris Stephen Bear is interested in, I think, yeah. in the Star Trek universe. And he yeah, you is, can tell. this is the way that the series generally goes uh, going forward. Uh, maybe not immediately, but it's certainly the tonal shift to be this kind of a thing. Less yeah, about I'm... the TNG sci-fi angle and mm -hmm. more about what's going on on the station. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be interested to see how... I respond to these episodes as they start to change because I like I like I feel like over the course of these two I kind of re reassessed my the way that I was taking it in a little bit um because up to this point <clears throat> excuse me I was expecting the classic kind of Star Trek thing and, and so that first half of the episode I found kind of boring to an extent, because it was lots of talking and lots of like politics. It's all set up. The first one yeah, is all, all, set all set up. Entirely yeah. set up. But when they paid off in the second one and you see what they're doing, it's like, okay, they're going after something explicitly different than than what uh, TNG or, or TUS have done up to this point. So keeping that in mind for me, I think, is going to be crucial for really uh, appreciating what comes after it, so I'm 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 looking forward to seeing how it changes because uh, it's definitely different than anything I've seen up to this point. Yeah, this this one felt it felt more modern. I enjoyed it on a level that I haven't enjoyed even some of the better episodes like Duet and Necessary Evil that we've seen. It felt different to me, and I don't even know if it's a great episode. Um, yeah, because yeah. I think it has problems on it, but it had a it was even if if you consider it a mediocre episode, I think that it handled its material more interesting or more like watchable than the media mediocre episodes we've seen to this point mm -hmm. um i think that's pretty much it we talked about odo's authoritarianism we talked about cisco we talked about all the stuff we talked about the changes i think that's it we're going to uh take a break play an audio clip me and clay will come back we'll read some patron thoughts and then we'll be final thoughts and then we will call it a day i thought you were strong commander you're not you're a fool a sentimental fool. I said I'd stop the Marquis, and I have. But I will not kill a good man for defending his home. You disappoint me. Don't expect me to lose any sleep over it. Mr. O'Brien, when you get a chance, I could use some help with these engines. 
Yes, sir. All right, so patron thoughts. If you support the show on patreon.com slash file, a couple dollars a month or whatever you donate, you can uh, leave thoughts about upcoming episodes and they get read on the podcast. We only have a couple for these. I think I put any up the, jokes you make will not be read. I, I will edit them. I will, I will edit them out. I've already done so with a big black marker here. Uh, we read Stephen Cobb's first thing about uh, Jake trying to look at women, which is a very good good point. Um, the back and forth between Ducat and Cisco for the entirety of the episode is very good. Lots of writers on the two parted, but not so much of the future. But so much of the future Star Trek universe is established based on these episodes. Pacing is not that bad. The big combat scene at the end is tepid at most, but it's at least interesting. I really like that Dukat is coming into his own on this with a great line, I'm not just any Cardassian, I'm Gold Dukat, commander of the Second Order. A great bit of character that really helps establish his arrogance on how important he considers himself to be, which really helps give us background on the character in the latter half of the series. Uh, Chad Wiley, the Maquis. I like the idea here better than the execution. DS9 is the only one of the 90s Trek shows to seriously explore the idea that, hey, maybe the Federation isn't perfect after all. But the episodes themselves are pretty dry for my taste. Like a lot of DS9's good ideas, it'll have to return to this in a few seasons down the road to really do it justice. They do. The Maquis do return quite, um, maybe not frequently, but they're in a a handful of episodes going forward. Um, Again, it's interesting to me that they were intended for Voyager and DS9 actually did the best job with them out of all of the series. I'm kind of, I don't know. They seem like something, well, I guess you could go back to it, but it's difficult i don't know what you would do going back to it that would be novel after like maybe two or three times because it seems like if their whole thing is that they're just rebelling against the cardassians it's like well you know all right sure yeah you know know, what what do you how many times can you go back to that well before it's kind of like all right what else what else you got yes it's all it's all going to be very similar to the idea of this episode of what's going on but it's a you know the the maquis are What's interesting to me is that they wrote this. This is essentially right after the incidents like Ruby Ridge and Waco had happened. Mm-hmm. Oh, and interesting. I didn't think about that. They're very, they're somewhat, um, the shows are very supportive of the Maquis on some level. I wouldn't say that they fully endorse what the Maquis are doing, but they're not super critical about what the Maquis are doing. And they, they sort of have a belief in what they've done and, I don't really remember what it was like after those two, but if people are unfamiliar, Ruby Ridge and Waco were sort of the rise of like the right wing militia in the U.S. that was very concerned about government overreach and big, uh, you know, the government sort of the U.S. government not staying American and becoming sort of a global entity and not respecting what American values are at, at any point. It's a good thing that line of thinking went away, huh? Yeah, we don't have to think about that or worry about that anymore. Was that, did that, I can't remember. Was, did, were those before Oklahoma City? Yes, they Oklahoma right? City was yeah. in response to Ruby Ridge. Yeah, know. Oklahoma City kind of put the cap on that for a while. Yes, yes, it did. Um, but it's it's interesting that the timing there is funny. It almost feels like Trek wouldn't be the show to really approach that kind of topic because it, it it's a little bit close to home, sort of. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit too emotional, uh, but they do, and th- there'll be more of that going forward. You know, th- I'm sure that they probably don't do this, but it would be interesting to have an episode where you have a situation like this that's very complex and very ethically gray. And one of your characters is someone from Earth who has never encountered anything like this ever. You know, <laughs> someone someone who's just been living on Earth their whole life and is like, no, everything's great. And then you put them into this situation. They're like, wait, wait, what? These people yeah. are... What, they, they're fighting with each other over what? And they don't have food and like, ex, you know, they're they're... People are tampering with the food replicators on. Well, this is let crazy. me know. 
let me know what you think about this. I was reading uh, some criticism that said that Julian Bashir is the only character in this series who exists, who would have existed better in, not better, but would have existed in Roddenberry's version of the universe. Um, I don't really know if I know what he's about well enough to comment on it. Okay. So like, I, I would think on this episode, just he's the one who comes in and says, are we really going to fire on our own people? Like he's, he's that That's person true. Yeah. kind of, yeah. um, he is, I would say that Bashir is drawn as the most optimistic character in a sense that is a lot of naivete and doesn't really match up with the universe. He's the one that came out to the frontier trying to seek adventure and stuff like that, right? But he's the he's the one who is sort of very optimistic and very overbearing and a little bit obnoxious with the other characters. Mm. And I sort of agree with it that he is the character whose personality fits best in the Roddenberry version of the TNG and TOS. Well, TNG really, because TOS was not like that. But yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, thought anyway. Yeah, and it's it's it would be it would be fun to see see them play that up a little bit because it kind of brings into perspective like what if is everybody just like working? You know, I've I've talked about this briefly. I've asked like, what do you do if you're not in Starfleet? It seems like everybody's in Starfleet, or yep. Starfleet is involved with everything. And so, does that mean like Earth is now, though they are one big unified, you know, uh, community? that unified community is a military organization. Yes. And so does that just mean like that everybody, everybody who's in Starfleet seems to be, even if you're like an ensign seems to be like fairly unfazed by all the shit that they have to end up doing. And so it's <laughs> just like, are they just raised from birth in this military, uh, military mind? Is it basically like a mirror version of Starship Troopers where it's like, you know, it's, it's a less, fascistic way of looking at it but it's still like yeah. no everybody you, you know you grow up and then you just you join the military and that's just how it goes yeah yeah well we'll, we'll have to see if the series uh delves in or i suppose i'll say obliquely um i i i think so and i think you're on to something Wait, there the, the way that you're saying that does that mean there's a bunch of people who know what happens in the show who are like screaming at, at their ipods right now <laughs> listening to me like listening to me say that like you have no idea what's coming they, they, did, they did they did that um when uh we've mentioned no jokes i think at the top of the show that um, wasn't a joke that was dead <laughs> last comment from patrons uh neil brendan says the maquis avery brooks's finest hour so far he says that with a question uh what do you think yeah i would say so yeah i think i think it gave him the most material and i think it's a he did a very good job acting here this is the way that cisco gets drawn a little bit more consistently going forward um and the stuff that we've at least oh, the stuff uh, that I've, I think we both commented on that have been the high points for him have been these points where he's had to make sort of ethical decisions and have these ethical discussions with people. And so to see that really writ large, I think, is, is definitely playing to the strength of the, of the way that they're handling the character. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to give this one a four out of five. I think it's a strong four for me. Um, I really enjoy it. It's 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 a, a two-parter that I enjoy too, which is kind of unique on just like a technical Star Trek level. Yeah. Um, but I think it, it it's it's changing. It's a different attitude of the series, and I think it goes to show a long way of what you can sort of expect from DS Nine in the future. And it shows you the the mentality and the ideology that the writers start to become more interested when, and mm-hmm. the characterization at this point feels more accurate to what the series becomes than it had previously. 
Yeah, I would say. Hmm, I would. I guess I would give it a four. I think it's. I think it's a little tough because this is not one that I would recommend people just like jump in on. Yeah. Uh, I mean, although you, theoretically you could, uh, but if if you're jumping into Star Trek or jumping into Deep Space Nine, this might not be the episode to do that with. Um. But that being said, it was good. I think it actually works better if they had if it had just been a two hour episode. I think the cu- I think the break in the in the in the middle probably hurts it. Yeah, um, yeah. Because it's so the first half is just all exposition and all set yep. up to to get you to what happens. I think it's in it. So do, having that and then having to wait a week, I think would be kind of kind of shitty. Um, yeah, it pro- it'd probably ruin your opinion of it a little bit because you'd have the bad taste of the first half. I don't think the first half is terrible, but it's just it's not an episode that really stands on its own on any yeah, way. Yeah, like if you, were, if you were on the fence, if you were watching this when it was on originally and you were on the fence about Deep Space Nine and then you watched that episode, I could see you going like, eh, I'm done with the show and then just not yep. coming back, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I think I would give it a four overall for for it's got a lot of really great stuff in it. It's a, you know important in the way that the world is being presented and thought about. Um, it's maybe not the most dynamic thing they've ever done, but yep. uh, I, I would say it's yeah, I would give it a four. All right, guys, thanks very much for listening. Uh, you just click all the social media links. There'll be Facebook and Twitter, blah blah blah. But uh, Patreon.com/slash The Penske File is the best way to support the show. If you want to go there, give a couple dollars, you get extra stuff. We have the Discord channel. There'll be links to that. Discord's like a Skype chat room. There's been a good discussion going on. There. I keep trying to jump in, but I pulled out, and it's like, oh, I scrolled back to see what was going on, and they people were talking <laughs> about Avengers, and I was like, son of a bitch, I can't, <laughs> I can't get into this because I haven't seen Avengers yet, so I don't want people ruining it for me. Yep. No spoilers, this a, guys. This is not a joke, everybody. This is serious <laughs> business. <laughs> We're done joking around. And as always, uh, as, $10. As, as the show has taken a turn that we're watching, we ourselves are taking a turn. This I is know, a serious I, show. I, I wanted to... Well, serious I, I, business. I wanted to, before I think people think that I've sort of uh, ruined the show by going too serious and stuff like that, it's, we're, we're working, I had, I had so much I wanted to say, I typed up two pages of notes here, Clay, to get through, and, uh, and I, we're under the gun to finish. That's the, that's the whole, the whole thing is that my shitty, basically, timing schedule has, has caused me to read through two pages of notes very quickly and not allow anyone to laugh whatsoever to come, <laughs> to come in, to come in under time. <laughs> it was a very stressful episode. The only yeah. jokes we'll be making from this point out will be dry, Dennis Miller style, obscure, <laughs> deep cut jokes. Well, that, yeah, jokes you will with... only mildly laugh at. That'll start with the Ruby Ridge and Waco references. Uh, $10 Captain Patron reference or supporters. They always get a shout out. Vincent Adolman, Stephen Cobb, Russ Graham, Eric Johnson, Nathan Elliott, Ewan Tibbetts, Decker Sebastiani, Neil Brennan, Carrier Mobility, Doug Valcamp, Michael Pond, Bradley Killens, Rune Bendler, Jay Stanley, Mike Burnett, Matthew Ross, Ben Douglas, Kyle Barrett, Joint Mango, Tarek Latif. Guys, thank you very much. You make the show possible and much appreciated. I think that's it, Clay. I got to run. So we're going to wrap this one up. But uh, thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. And guys, we will be back next time. I think it's The Wire is after this. So the sh- oh, we're watching The Wire. We're getting real yeah, serious. We, we just have a lot of dump t- DS Nine, and we're gonna go into The Wire. We have a lot of serious TV to get through in a very short amount of time. So it's gonna be super serious from here on out. Guys, from this anyway, point, we're doing The Wire, and then we're doing Ken Burns's uh, Vietnam, 
and then we're doing whatever Holocaust documentaries we can get our hands we'll, on. We'll sneak in baseball, too, to kill whatever sense of humor is actually <laughs> present at this point. We'll, I just want to do cold statistical objective analysis, I think. Um, guys, thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time.